Do you like data centers? Cause I love data centers! I love data centers. Data centers. Data centers. I love data centers! We love data centers! Woo! Welcome and thank you for listening. This is your host, Sean Patrick Terrio, founder, CEO, and catalyst of Open Spectrum. What you can expect to find here on this podcast are fresh new conversations with some of the most successful, experienced, and fascinating players that I have met while working in the data center marketplace over the past decade. For those who already know me, this probably goes without saying, but I can assure you new listeners that there will be no marketing fluffery or sales BS here. In fact, this is specifically a no marketing fluffery and sales BS zone, at least for the next hour or so. My objective is pure. It's to simply share some raw, honest advice and entertaining stories that will hopefully teach you something new, maybe something thought-provoking and maybe even enjoyable about the industry that drives the brave new digital world that we live in today. Mr. Rich Miller, thank you so much for joining me here on the I Love Data Centers podcast. It is an honor and a privilege to uh, be able to spend some time with you. Uh, well, you're very welcome, Sean. I, I'm, I, you know, I'm grateful for the invitation. And as you know, I, uh, I also love data centers and uh, enjoy talking about them. Uh, so this is a, a great opportunity. It's much appreciated. Awesome. So to the extent that we have, you know, celebrities in, in our industry, you are, you know, you're one of the most well-known names and uh, dare I say celebrity in the data center industry in our, in our small little corner of the world. Um, and you've had a, a very extensive background in and around the space. And I'd love to, you know, kick this whole thing off by really getting an understanding and, and having our audience really hear what your background is, like where you came from. Um, and we could even go as far back as, you know, where you grew up and what got you interested in, in technology and tech in the first place. Sure. Uh, so my story is, uh, is kind of interesting in that um, I started out as a sports writer and that was really sort of my uh, core competence starting out. I had, uh, you know, I, I grew up in, uh, in Northern New Jersey and, uh, my first interaction with journalism was when my, my older sister uh, was running the uh, high school newspaper and she and her friend would write about everything, but she didn't know anything about sports. So she said, well, Richard, you know about sports. And, uh, and so I started uh, uh, doing that and uh, continued it, uh, uh, went to school at Rutgers and worked with the, the Daily Target, the newspaper there, and, and just loved it. And uh, you know, then I started uh, working in New Jersey at uh, you know high, high school, uh, doing high school coverage and college coverage at weekly newspapers, uh, and that's how I got into the, the professional news business. Is working for papers, uh, writing about sports, which I think is great training for a lot of things. Um, it, you know, I think if you can't be creative uh, uh, and energized writing about sports, you, you should you know. <laughs> You should maybe journalism is not your profession because it, it was great fun, and uh, and it teaches you to do things under deadline, under the gun. It's where you really learn execution. It's not just about uh, you know everybody's like fanboying out while you're covering sports. It was uh, so I learned just about everything in the business working at weekly newspapers writing sports. Um, but you know, uh, is uh, after I got married. Uh, 
my wife, Colleen, uh, was working days. And at one point she said, well, is it always going to be nights and weekends? And, you know, the answer to that question was, you know, you look around the newsroom uh, and uh, there were only a, a limited number of reliable day jobs. And one of them was uh, writing about business. So I wound up uh, gravitating to the business desk. Uh, I was working in a paper in New Brunswick, New Jersey, and my first uh, uh, my first day on the news desk uh, on, the, on the business news desk was uh, you know uh, what they call Black Monday in, in 1987. <laughs> the stock market fell 508 points, which at the time was was kind of crazy. So I got sort of a you know baptism by fire there, but um, I loved it. I was you know bitten by the business bug and. So that's how I got into, uh, you know, business journalism, which as my career progressed, uh, wound up going into covering technology. Uh, the kind of interesting, like I was not very, uh, a lot of the, the guys you talk to talk about having a passion for computers and technology very early. Um, I had a very different story. I wasn't that interested in computers, was a little bit afraid of them. Uh, the turning point for me was in the 90s when I was, you know, covering business, and uh, uh, we got uh, we got a new computer, and it was my first interaction with uh, America Online. I went on America Online, and I saw, yeah, they had a lot of content and chat rooms and all this stuff, but I also saw people could create their own web pages within America Online, and to me, the ability to write something on your computer and publish it to the world through this web page uh, was, was just a revelation. And uh, so that I immediately saw that as sort of transforming the newspaper business. And I'm like, well, this is, this is the new world. So uh, pretty quickly I was learning HTML and how to build the website. Um, so, you know, I, I spent a few frustrating years trying to help the newspapers that I was working for understand that the internet was coming and the world was changing and we had to kind of prepare for it. Uh, and they really didn't get it. And uh, so I was thinking about what the, the future of working online was going to look like. And around that time, um, my wife was working with uh, large real estate company that had operations in New Jersey, and she was building them sort of an, uh, uh, an e-commerce site, an online real estate uh, uh, listings uh, for commercial real estate. And one of the guys that, uh, you know, she encountered in the office over there uh, was a guy who was doing telecom real estate, a guy named Joe Suffers, who was, uh, you know, working with America Online, among others. And uh, when I, you know, I met Joe, and he's like, "Hey, this is going to be the future. This is, you know, they're going to need these everywhere. These data centers are a crazy thing, and that's what you should be writing about." And I'm like, "Well, I don't know about that." Much as I love the internet, and I understood the the sort of how to build websites and, and publishing, um, but then I, I it was probably early 2000. I took my first walk through a, a data center that uh, Joe took me through in Princeton, New Jersey, and I walked through, and all the light bulbs went off over my head. You know, when I saw it, I'm just like, "Wow, this is that." You know, all of the things that happen in your browser when you're sitting at your computer 
that there's this entire back end of infrastructure that, that has to exist uh, to be able to make all of that happen. Uh, so to me, it was a real revelation. Um, and I wound up you know, working with Joe on a, a developing a, a website called carrierhotels.com, which was my introduction into the industry um, and would sort of uh, be the, the uh, would lead to the later publications that I put together, you know, uh, uh, first data center knowledge and, and now data center frontier. So you ha- obviously have an entrepreneurial bug and, and mindset venturing off to, to do a couple of the, the projects that, that you've done over the last few decades. Uh, did that come from just seeing an opportunity and wanting to take advantage of it? Or did you have specific people in your life growing up or around you that kind of mentored you through that process? Well, kind of an interesting thing. I don't feel like I'm a natural entrepreneur or a born entrepreneur. Um, but I, I come from, I was raised in a family that was that, you know, intellectual curiosity and uh, always reading. My mother was a librarian, uh, so had a love for books in the written world from a very early time. And so that really kind of, I think, equipped me in a way to, uh, to be adaptive to things. Um, leaving the newspaper business was actually a, a big deal. And there's a lot of people uh, who stay at newspapers, you know, long after they should have, you know, embraced uh, online journalism and at least having a familiarity with that, uh, because you know it's very structured. You have a role that you're, you know, comfortable in as a reporter, asking the questions. Uh, but by and large, there's a whole, you know, infrastructure that uh, you know, exists above your head where people take the stories, print them, distribute them. You know, so in a way, it's a very specific role, and and uh, you have to be motivated and curious. But it, it isn't necessarily entrepreneurial. But when I, I left and, and started working in a in a small company, uh, Joe had a company called Notecom that covered that worked in data center real estate. So it's a small operation, just a few of us, and you know, it was one of those things where I just kind of learned by by watching and doing with, with all the things that, that Joe did and, and, and sort of saw that uh, uh, the entrepreneurial process of taking some risks, putting yourself out there and always kind of, you know, pursuing uh, a vision, having the ability to have your own idea about how to approach things is ultimately what became interesting to me. Um, and ultimately, Joe got into, uh, you know, owning buildings and, and actual commercial property and, uh, you know, I decided to go off and kind of do my own thing because I saw uh, uh, an opportunity in uh, publishing. And, and you know, I wasn't going to make the leap over to that, and, and Joe really wanted to focus on that. But uh, at that point, you know, it was, uh, I was really tooling around with the idea of being able to be kind of a solo publisher, that the internet had created this opportunity to uh, combine sort of the best of both worlds, the uh, journalistic skills and uh, traditional reporting techniques and standards of, uh, of newspapers with the delivery technology of, uh, of the internet and sort of, you know, just intermediates all sorts of things. You don't need a printing press. You don't need 
trucks, you know, it, it, it takes all sorts of stuff out of the process. So it creates entirely different economics, which, of course, the, the news industry has been struggling with ever since. But I kind of saw that as, you know, an opportunity to say, OK, what's what's your vision for what you want to do and what you want to write about? And, you know, it just I was really fortunate in some ways you kind of stumble into your own luck. But uh, I had had a, a series of experiences that positioned me to uh, start an online publication in an industry where there was tremendous growth and the opportunity to build a publishing operation where uh, uh, a small, uh, you know, a solo publisher or a small team could be successful. Yeah. Uh, and, and that, you know, ultimately became data center knowledge. But, you know, it's a learning process. You got to put yourself out there. Uh, you know, in those years, I was looking at everything I could find and reading everything I could find about other people who were trying to build online businesses in uh, journalism. And trying so to, find to, to put a timestamp on this, when when was that? When you first started launching Data Center Knowledge? So Data Center Knowledge launched in May of 2005. So and and Nodecom was like a, and and the Carrier Hotels was like 2000 to 2004. I uh, I spent more than a year just kind of I was I was doing some freelancing on uh, web hosting and writing reports for an outfit in the UK called Netgraph. Which, if you've never seen them, they're they're really fascinating. Essentially, they spider like all the publicly visible websites in the world and use that to compile statistics and reports on what kind of operating system people are using, and all sorts of uh, uh, sort of uh, bird's eye views of the technology that's being used around the internet. Uh, and so I was writing for them and. Uh, and then of early 2005, uh, I actually noticed a couple of transactions in Los Angeles that uh, in the Los Angeles area that, that caught my attention. There was a couple of buildings in El Segundo that had, you know, a, a few years before had been just, you know, the, I guess considered kind of white elephants in that uh, they built these beautiful buildings. I think it was Exodus and maybe above net and hadn't been able to build them. And after 9-11, they didn't even really you know, kind of work as disaster recovery because they were so big and right next to an airport, which was a thing at the time. Kind of, kind of humorous now when you look where so many data centers are located. But um, all of a sudden, in the span of a, a few weeks, uh, both of those facilities got bought up. And uh, I just realized that something was stirring out there that, uh, that there was a level of activity coming back to the data center market. And so I just sat down one day and, you know, set up data center knowledge and started writing about it. So were you also at that time in around 2005 doing solo, you know, looking for advertisers and all that? I know you have a business partner now. Like how did, how did, how and when did that come into the mix? So starting out, I just wrote for like the first year and didn't try to monetize it. The thing that, uh, you know, in many ways made data center knowledge possible with Google AdSense was uh, the launch of this program that just allowed you to take a piece of code, put it on your website, and Google would sell the ads and display the, uh, the, the 
what was then TechDad, uh, and then they'd send you a check each month, which was the perfect kind of opportunity for someone like myself who couldn't afford an advertising staff. And uh, but I had I had people coming and reading very specific content, and I figured out very quickly with AdSense that the value of data center content is that you know if you make a, a business relationship or a, a, a co-location or, or a data center relationship, uh, it's got tremendous value. So folks who are trying to uh, locate customers uh, will invest in that. And so there were, you know, there's a pretty good return on the, the ads, on AdSense, even those little initial tech ads. Uh, and that is what enabled me to build a, a publishing operation where I could put more time into it. I think it was 2007 before I finally stopped the freelancing for Netcraft, and I just said, "Okay, this looks like it's working. I'm going all in." Uh, I spent uh, the AdSense revenue was pretty good. I spent spent a short period of time <laughs> trying to to sell a few ads myself. Uh, something that I discovered I'm just not very good at. Um, but around that time, I, I got a call out of the blue from uh, uh, Kevin Normando, who has gone on to be business partners together, uh, first at Data Center Knowledge and, and Data Center Frontier. Uh, and, and that was a huge turning point. Uh, Kevin was working for IDG at the time, uh, but he had a lot of experience selling online. He'd worked at America Online uh, and worked out both out in the Bay Area and uh and so Kevin was working with IDG, and they were building a blog network. That was the whole thing was blogs were hot, and the traditional trade publishers were trying to figure out how to, you know, make the money off this blogging thing. Yep. And what they decided to do was, you know, uh, sell ad space for a couple of, uh, uh, for a you know, technology blog. In this case, they were looking for B2B, business-to-business uh, -business, uh, technology blog. And... Uh, Data center knowledge was one of the first ones they looked at, essentially trying to, you know, replace AdSense. Um, and so Kevin and I started working together. Uh, and and first of all, Kevin's a, a fabulous uh, ad salesperson and, and business development uh, executive. Uh, very quickly figured out what we were doing and how to be able to uh, talk to folks in the data center industry about how they could use. Uh, publication like DCK and the, the audience we had developed, uh, you know, to be useful to their business. So, you know, and this is, I think, is one of the things that uh, I was fortunate in that most journalists who were trying to, you know, build online publications uh, in those days, you know, really, I think, uh, didn't put, put that piece of it together. Uh, it's really hard to, to, to find people who could do what uh, what Kevin does and coming in, understanding how the editorial operation works and working with that uh, uh, to really kind of just take that piece of the business off our hands and, and have it sort of in in startup world now, it's, uh, the hot thing is to have, you know, two founders have a technology founder and a business founder. And, you know, um, that was kind of what we, we wound up doing is Kevin worked the business side of it and I worked the, uh, uh, the, the content uh, piece of it. Uh, and over time, we, we built 
built the partnership. Um, and, you know, after a while, in about 2009, my wife, Colleen, came on to work full time. Uh, and it was kind of the three of us until we uh, uh, the business grew like mad. And, and we wound up uh, in 2012 being uh, being acquired by uh, a company called iNet Interactive. So were you then originally contracted with IDG and they were they were selling the advertising revenue? Yeah, so it kind of worked like they were kind of trying to do what Ad, what AdSense was does uh, right. was doing and and just get a better yield, and which they were fairly successful at. We did get better return on the, uh, the IDG Tech Network, as it was called, um, and over time it built uh, enough that you know uh, at some point IDG kind of shifted gears and they said, well, we want to kind of focus our consumer blogs and you know. Uh, and Kevin decided, you know, hey, this, <laughs> this data center thing is, is working out pretty good. So he, he came to me and we, uh, you know, worked together and partnered on the data center knowledge. But that was that was the uh, that was the model at the time. Uh, but I think the the challenge with you know business to business was you're never going to have the kind of uh, scale in terms of page views that you can get on like gadget blogs, for example. Uh, and that I think is the, you know, one of the things that a lot of the uh, journalism, the venture-funded journalism startups that you see nowadays have really struggled with. They they all chasing this enormous scale, uh, but the return on the ads is much lower than you get in a really targeted uh, business-to-business uh, operation. Right. Uh, so, uh, and we kind of figured figured out how to do that as because we didn't have a huge staff we could do that at scale with a, a small nimble team that that would work for us yeah yeah it was around that same time in the late 2000s around 2008 2009 where my my marketing brain started scouring online when uh you know my marketing slash entrepreneurial brain started scouring online trying to figure out who had content because i wanted to learn learn more about the industry and try to figure out who who actually was educating and training and, and providing that type of detail level of knowledge. And there were there was really nobody other than you. <laughs> there was data center knowledge and that was it, um, at least from what I could find at that time. And that kind of sparked, sparked, my, sparked my brain to say, well, hmm, I was already starting to do some trainings and started saying, hmm, you know, th- there's a need here. There's obviously a gap in this market for education and training. Um, but related related to what you were just talking about, you know, we we are in a very niche marketplace that's obviously growing, you know, day by day, uh, with hundreds, if not dozens, of of people entering the space, meaning working for different data center providers and learning learning more about how to deploy that infrastructure. But back then, I mean, there were really only a couple, maybe hundred people, I would say, that were like really in the trenches making all this stuff happen. Um, how have you seen you know that evolve over the last decade, fifteen years? It's been pretty crazy, really. I mean, one of the things that was uh, interesting to me as a journalist encountering the industry early on was that it wasn't a huge industry, uh, but it was doing important work with a lot of investment behind it. But there were really, uh, you know, it was a pretty small universe of, of folks that that would live, eat, and breathe this stuff. And it's funny in a way because if you go outside of the, the sort of data center center sphere and try to talk to people about what you do, you know, it was like 
they think I'm speaking another language. Uh, whereas you get in a room with a, a full of data center people, and there's uh, this whole other conversation that can happen and, and excitement. Um, and one of the reasons it was small was, you know, there was a lot of in, in enthusiasm when I first got in because it was the dot-com boom and everybody thought it was going bananas and, uh, you know, there was all the telecom companies were, were growing like mad. And it's kind of an inter- interesting experience because as, as a journalist, I, I you know, I kidded that I, I got to be a, uh, an engineer on the two simultaneous crashes at this once, the telecom crash and the, the dot-com crash <laughs> running a dot-com at the time. But um, you know, that was kind of followed by this nuclear winter for the data center sector where after all the dot-coms went away, uh, there were a lot of uh, data centers standing empty and uh, there were a lot of bankruptcies. Uh, in fact, you know, the, the tail end of carrierhotels.com, we worked with, you know, the bankruptcy courts on getting, you know, uh, some of the uh, properties marketed for the bankruptcy sales for like WorldCom. Huh. So that's like uh, 2001, 2002, 2003. That was, that was yeah, 2002, 2003 was was uh, uh, a really tough time for the industry. But what that did is it boiled down. It it, it sort of you know all the people who were kind of halfway in or were diehard about the industry just went away. Uh, it really sort of distilled the uh, people working in the industry down to the folks who were long-term believers in the value of what uh, was being built uh, in the data center sector and where the internet itself was going. Uh, and and so, you know, I got to know a lot of people by, because, you know, for a couple of years, there weren't even conferences because it was, things were so bad. But, you know, you, you talk to people in the industry, you, you get to know them, and there's this sort of shared interest. Uh, there were, at the time, as you noted, there weren't a lot of journalists that were really paying attention to the data center industry. So, um, you know, people would talk to me and were very generous with their time, both in helping me understand things, uh, because that's the most important thing as a, as a journalist is to be able to get your head around uh, things. Um, and I also realized that, you know, that's a, a privilege in itself when you're kind of the steward of, uh, of other people's experiences that you're going to then share with the world. That it's really important to get it right, and you know nowadays uh, maybe I seem old school that way, uh, but uh, you know I was raised with a really uh, a strong focus on accuracy and uh, uh, trying to get all the facts right and taking the time to do it, and uh, I, I don't think that was always the experience with journalists from you know uh, sort of mainstream publications, for lack of a better word, that would you know sort of parachute in and try to cover the data center sector. Uh, and, and so I think that helped me build some relationships and respect from the people who really knew what was going on. Um, and it, I have to say that given that, uh, you know, I, I see a number of people who I've known for like, you know, 15, 18 years or so. I'll see one of their conferences and, and just kind of shake our heads and go, can you believe all of this? Because it is uh, the amount of activity that we're seeing now um, is pretty amazing. And uh, both in terms of uh, the number of facilities that are being built, the size of the buildings and campuses that are being built, and and some of the deals and leases that are taking place because there's been a supersizing of 
of that as well. Um, lots of investment interest in the space. Uh, there's all kinds of publications covering the data center sector now. And uh, when I go out and talk to people, like, oh yeah, data centers, you know, people are gonna know what a data center is. Uh, so right. it's, uh, it has been a, a, a pretty fascinating transformation. And I think there's much more to come because, you know, one of the things you do at Data Center Frontier is focus on what's next and the technologies that are coming down the pike. And when you look at things like the impact of artificial intelligence and edge computing, Internet of Things, virtual reality, and especially, you know, autonomous cars and autonomous vehicles, there are so many technologies coming down the pike that could all have a really transformative impact upon culture and business in the United States and around the world. And almost all of them are fueled by data. It's all about the data. And, um, you know, it, and some of the folks at Intel have some interesting presentations on this, and, and Cisco's got numbers on it as well. Yeah. The amount of, we, we have always underestimated. Uh, even with the craziest estimates people put out there, the amount of data that our economy is generating, and uh, and now everybody's you know got a distributed network of computers like uh, in their pocket, yeah, and uh, that all yeah, the, ties together and drives it. The other piece is not just the data, right? But it's the processing. It's the data processing. It's making sense yeah. of that data, right? So not not only do you have the storage needed for the data, but then you need the storage for all the different ways that you can play with and tweak and connect and um, make sense of all that data, which is just mind boggling. And it's, uh, I think we've had this conversation in the past, but Todd, Todd Smith, my partner and I have this conversation on a regular basis with providers and those who say, Oh, well, you know, as, as you can fit more and more data on smaller and smaller devices that require less and less power, the data center industry is going to become obsolete. And we have the exact opposite viewpoint, which is as you can fit more data on smaller and smaller devices and the pipes that, that transmit and receive data get larger and larger and become more affordable, all you're doing is creating new opportunities and new applications for all that data, which only increases the use case and the need for, for more data. Uh, so it's, it's a fun... It's a fun conversation, and in fact, I just uh, the last the last interview I just did was with a good friend of mine, uh, Heather uh, Heather Vescent, who is a she has a master's in um, foresight. Uh, she's a futurist, and she works with the U.S. government and the Army. And we had a fun conversation about where the future of this this space and this industry is going. Um, but that's you know to that topic, I have a lot of people that ask me about. Uh, you know, cryptocurrency and how cryptocurrency is going to sure. affect the data center industry and how renewables are going to affect the data center industry. And I'm curious, you know, you probably get those same questions and, and what, what your thoughts are. Well, it's interesting because when I, uh, <clears throat> the last couple of years I was at data center knowledge was when the Bitcoin boom was just kind of starting. And I got fascinated with it fairly early because I was always looking at the horizon to see what are the potential uh, drivers of demand for data center space? And it seemed to me that something that was as uh, compute intensive as uh, you know securing the, the Bitcoin blockchain, you know the mining operation, uh, would have an impact. And and it certainly did for a while. Um, so when I 
you know, when I left DCK, I actually for a while, you know, pondered whether there was, uh, you know, uh, value in a publication just covering, you know, Bitcoin and blockchain infrastructure. I, I decided not to do that because, you know, obviously the cloud and data centers are so compelling. But Bitcoin is one of those things that when you get into the blockchain and how it works and all the different ways that it could be used as a technology, not just as a digital currency, um, it's easy to see that the transformational potential of it. Uh, it is uh, just kind of uh, still on the, what I think is the tail end of a, a kind of Wild West uh, period in uh, blockchain where you know, there was a period where, you know, most of the, the CEOs of a lot of these companies, you know, could all fly together in clown cars because it was just like these were not the, the there was a, a first round of folks who just, you know, uh, weren't from the traditional business community. They were just uh, enthusiasts and, and, and thought this was going to change the world. And, and a lot of them still believed it. But it was interesting. So I started going to the conferences about, you know, Bitcoin. Uh, which were fascinating because half the place would be these guys in Hawaiian shirts and sandals who had, you know, were the true believers from the very early days. And then there'd be these guys in, in suits <laughs> from, you know, the financial sector who, you know, wanted to uh, uh, you know, invest in it or thought that there was, you know, wondered what blockchain could do to the financial industry. And the funny thing was that, that sometimes the guys in the Hawaiian shirts had more money than the guys in the suits. Because they started mining Bitcoin when it was like you know a couple cents, um, but it it is uh, it's one of those things where the um, much like uh, the dot com era, there's an initial burst of speculation over enthusiasm. A lot of people like contracted for data space that they weren't data center space. They wound up not using. Uh, you know there were some lumps by uh, providers who had worked closely with them. But there was other other relationships. If you see, like examples in places like Iceland, uh, you know, Vern Global's worked with a lot of uh, uh, you know blockchain and crypto uh, companies, uh, and this whole other tier of infrastructure has popped up. Uh, much like you know, uh, the Bitcoin folks pretty much came up with their own processors. Uh, while that was a kind of a, a crazy uh, process. Uh, a lot of the hardware, uh, early hardware, actually didn't come from Silicon Valley. It was guys innovating on their own. And the same thing kind of happened with all these kind of warehouse-style uh, Bitcoin mines that first popped up where people were using just like, you know, fans they got from Home Depot and and open shelving to, to host stuff, uh, which, you know, is a different type of infrastructure, but uh, uh, not one that... Uh, was relevant to us as a commercial, you know, a data center service provider. Well, um, let's 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 speak to that and educate the the listeners real quick. Um, sure. Because early on, you know, Bitcoin miners were calling the the colocation providers, saying, "Hey, you know, what's it going to cost for me to deploy, you know, a quarter megawatt or half a megawatt worth of infrastructure?" And then they'd come back and just be like, "There's no way I'm going to pay that much for right. for data center infrastructure." So, you know, what? Right. Let's let's educate a little bit here on that. So why why so, is it that a typical you know colocation facility would not be an ideal fit for a miner? So there's a couple of ways in which the interest of cryptocurrency miners uh, diverges from your typical data center customer. The first is that they're very cost sensitive, particularly to the cost of power, uh, and they also want to run a lot of hardware. 
because they want a lot of power. Uh, but they are also, the economics of their business are hostage to the price of Bitcoin and will fluctuate with that. So in, in uh, the sort of first wave of speculation came when Bitcoin surged to like $1,300, $1,300, which seemed like, you know, a, a crazy amount of money at the time. Uh, and people thought that, uh, hey, at, at that price, you know, they could sustain uh, working with some of these uh, commercial data centers. But, you know, what would happen is these guys would come in and they would want a lot of power right away. They didn't want to uh, pay much for it. Uh, and in a lot of ways, some of the mission critical elements that data centers are engineered for don't necessarily apply uh, to a, a Bitcoin operation. Uh, if they're interrupted, yeah, they're, they're losing revenue, but it's not like you have a mission, you know, a life critical thing like with hospitals or 911 systems or anything like that. So, um, a lot of these guys figured out on their own by building warehouses that they didn't need, for example, UPSs and generators. Uh, they just needed power. So a lot of them just wanted grid power. And, and some, uh, uh, this is one of the things that led some data center providers to start looking at you know, what they call variable resiliency, which is you offer some you know, two-end space that's got everything backed up, but you know, now you start to offer some one end, you know, just, you know, the uh, essentially uh, grid power uh, and uh, and the where the value is really the cooling, to be able to cool the stuff. Uh, because that's a huge challenge for a lot of the, 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 the density of the, the mining operation. So some of the traditional economic and use cases didn't apply. So there was a bit of a mismatch there. And once um, miners saw these guys kind of rolling their own uh, mining facilities in these warehouses, uh, they kind of gravitated in that direction. Now a lot of folks have are, are you know particularly the industrial scale uh, mining operations look at uh, containerized uh, data centers uh, or sort of uh, things that uh, look a lot like the old Yahoo computing coop that are just sort of, uh, you know, uh, warehouse style things that can vent a lot of heat. But uh, uh, it, it, in terms of the, your you know, class A data center space, uh, there's been a fairly limited amount of demand in the uh, Bitcoin sector for that. But, but that doesn't mean that there aren't some folks in the data center space who are doing business with, uh, uh, with that industry on different types of facilities. I mean, if you're just building powered shells, you know, maybe there's a bet something where there's an alignment of interest. The uh, the other piece that I'd love to get your insight on is, you know, you, you mentioned cost of power, right? That's an absolutely critical variable. Um, and sure. I kind of scratch my head when I hear some of these miners talking about trying to build build mines, you know, in here in North Carolina, where there's some advantages to doing so, but the cost of power here is still three times more than it is in, let's say, you know, Quincy, Washington. Um, right. Or as you've mentioned already, like Iceland or, you know, in the, the Netherlands, um, where the cost of power is just drastically cheaper. So if, if all we're looking for is the cheapest location to deploy a bunch of compute servers, it's not going to be in 
you know, Washington, it's not going to be really anywhere other than a very select few places around the world. Um, and location at the end, you know, latency is a non-issue. So if we're looking to build a mine, why the heck are people looking at building it anywhere other than very specific locations where they can just do it for dirt cheap? Well, I think what we're seeing is that in the real industrial scale operations really are gravitating towards places with, uh, really cheap power. And as a result, the utilities in those areas have been overwhelmed with interest from miners who are, who are requesting like dozens and even hundreds of megawatts of power. Uh, we've seen this in a couple of places. Wenatchee, Washington, I wrote about at Data Center Frontier, where they've, you know, this kind of started a couple of years ago when they got all sorts of interest from uh, Bitcoin folks with the powers like we sent uh, a kilowatt hour. And uh, and so the utility had to say, hey, look, you know, you guys want all kinds of power, but we don't know if you're going to be here next year. Uh, and so they they tried to work out arrangements where you get some upfront sort of investment and commitment from the customer uh, to assure that, you know, utility is not just going to build all of this capacity and distribution infrastructure for nothing. So when actually is one place that has seen just an explosion. Uh, the other place is Quebec, where they have a lot of hydropower, as is the case in Washington. And again, they uh, Hydro Quebec kind of said, "Hey, we're we're open for business for this." And now they've been, you know, they're, they're doing <laughs> at different places up there, doing moratoriums or, or sort of throttling the interest uh, in a way so they can kind of match it to to a. You want to find out the people who are serious and can really you know, conduct business uh, at this kind of level and might be around, and B, to, to balance the amount of power that's being asked for against the, the needs of sort of commercial and residential customers. But I think the what we will start to see, and this is sort of the interesting uh, evolution from Bitcoin to larger blockchain technologies, is the blockchain can be used in lots of ways, uh, you know, in lots of different uh, applications. and you know, the financial industry, for example, as we mentioned before, you know, there's a lot of things, uh, ways where they could use blockchain infrastructure to take a lot of the cost out of what they do in the back end of, uh, you know, financial transaction systems. That's why they, you see a lot of uh, financial companies doing research on uh, blockchain applications. Uh, it can be used to track things. I just, you know, there's people involved in food safety, for example, that are, are very interested in blockchain. Uh, because it's a, you know effectively can be used as an online ledger to keep track of things. There's places looking at uh, track property ownership, um, and I wonder if some of those applications might not be uh, might not have business components that would require them to be uh, to have proximity to either you know corporate headquarters or to uh, end users, uh, and uh, and uh, eventually there might be you know, some latency uh, things that tie into it. So, you know, as, as actual blockchain technologies become adopted in different ways, um, there will there might be different considerations with the infrastructure. And I think that's, a, that's an area to watch. I don't know how that's going to turn out or what that will look like, uh, but I don't think it's going to look like, like the current, you know, Bitcoin mining phase necessarily. And some of those places then might look in places like, you know, Want to do a data center near Research Triangle? Maybe there's, uh, 
maybe there's a, a use case for that, that that argues for it. So related to that, and you brought it up a little bit, um, has to do with the the renewable power conversation. Um, right. You know, the news that just came out that that 365 Main Digital Realty's property 365 Main is now 100% um, renewable. You know, receiving power specifically from uh, renewable sources. You know, knowing PG&E, I think that's a little interesting. They're effectively buying renewable credits, as far as I understand it, and it's not actually directly you know power being fed. You can't track the electrons specifically from that hydro dam or the whatever the source is through the network to the facility. Yeah. Um, but you know, how have you seen that evolve? And a lot of it is cost, right? And there's been a lot of subsidies provided over the last decade. Um, encouraging people to leverage type you know, renewables. The current White House administration, you know, obviously is nowhere near as gung ho on the renewable platform as as the prior White House administration. Um, but so how how do you see that playing out? Because you know, the United States, as I've come to understand it, doing what I do and learning what you know, like you being extremely inquisitive, is that the United States is light years behind the likes of uh, Europe and and other. Uh, regions around the world when it comes to leveraging and utilizing renewable sources of, of energy. But how, how does that play a factor? You know, does it all go away once those credits go away and the renewable power becomes more expensive? You know, is there a need or a demand from companies to actually have renewable power if, if at the end of the day, the cost for that power is going to be more than non-renewable sources? It's just a, it's an interesting conversation that I've been having with folks that I can't fully, you know, have an. I don't have a, a clear cut answer to. Yeah, and I, I so energy is interesting because I've been writing a lot about energy and how data centers procure and use it for a long time. Partly because this first was an efficiency issue in terms of how we use, you know, data centers use less power because it's such a large portion of their expenses. People looked at the power bills and, like, you know, freaked out. It's like, well, why are we using all this power? So that prompted a whole movement towards efficiency and PUE and really optimizing the Dickens out of data centers to use as little energy as possible to be as efficient as possible. And I think a lot of people underestimate the way in which this has actually been a driver for improved energy efficiency in the U.S. economy. What we've done is we've taken a lot of inefficient processes that exist in, you know, meat space or the, the real world, however you want to think of it. And we've moved uh, important chunks of those business processes into uh, high-tech facilities that are completely optimized to use as little energy as possible in that are run by the largest and most brilliant technology companies in the world and are optimizing for this and are driven by this. And now are bringing the same focus to renewable energy. Uh, I think there's uh, there's a lack of understanding about how the data center industry, uh, which was once an energy hog in lots of ways, has really become a force uh, for positive progress in uh, the U.S. in terms of energy. Uh, now, there's no question that there are other parts of the world where sort of philosophically, um, have been more focused on uh, green power, renewable, uh, and just being more, you know, uh, focused on the environment and how we're we're using resources. Uh, Europe is, is one place, but I think 
we've seen a lot of change as the conversation has uh, has shifted from efficiency to renewables. Uh, and the fact that we've had a change in administration hasn't changed anything at all in terms of the way the data center industry sees that. Uh, it's become the most powerful force in, in procuring and creating new renewable generation, which is an important philosophical point that's been championed by Google and embraced by a lot of other folks. So to unpack that, you've always had, you know, from very early on, you had renewable energy credit, which is where, you know, a company that um, runs a data center hosting operation can essentially, you know, uh, buy these credits, pay, you know, money to support uh, a, a generation source that's creating renewable energy. Usually, this has always been uh, facilities that already existed. Uh, so, a lot of people, particularly in the environmental movement, saw that as like, well, that's just a business transaction. It's not really making the earth any greener. And as you noted, you can't, it's not like the, the uh, electrons were flowing from a wind turbine right to the data center and, and that was the electrons being used. That's never really something that you can guarantee. So, almost any of the renewables. Uh, sort of initiatives uh, are involved offsets in some fashion, where you're essentially accounting for the fact that the data centers can use all this energy and we're making sure that uh, that an equivalent amount of renewable energy comes into the world at, at least. Um, what Google was very uh, hardcore about when they started looking at renewable energy was um, a concept called additionality, which is that their investments in renewable energy would not just be to compensate somebody who, you know, say, hey, good job, you built something, but to create additional renewable resources on the U.S. energy grid. So what they would do is they would go to, to they would look for places where somebody was considering uh, a, a building a, a big uh, solar array or, you know, deploying a wind energy farm. And they'd say, hey, if you, if you would, uh, you know, build that uh, 100 megawatt, uh, you know, solar array, we'll buy all of the energy uh, that you'll produce for a long period of time. Uh, and so what that does is it actually enables the person who was building that, that uh, energy facility uh, to get funding, to fund the, the growth of it, because they can say, hey, we got the world's largest technology company that wants to buy everything that we can give them. So will you finance our project? And in that way, it supported the uh, the growth of renewable energy. And that's, um, I think a lot of people underappreciate the extent in which uh, that has become a transformative force in actually creating new solar and wind generation projects. Is having these huge data center customers uh, available to buy that energy as soon as it's available. Uh, we're starting to see that even in places that have traditionally been uh, criticized for their energy mix, like Virginia. is. There's all sorts of uh, renewable energy uh, projects happening in Virginia because um, because of the state's data center industry, the largest uh, data center market in the world. And, uh, you know, it's not an accident that the companies that have said, you know, these cloud builders have said, we need green energy. Uh, to be able to come to um, uh, to your state and build data centers, uh, and that kind of got uh, you know, Dominion Energy and, and others 
to look at renewables in, as, a, as a critical piece of business. So, you know, Google is now building data centers in Northern Virginia. Uh, Facebook, you know, is just building a big uh, facility in, uh, uh, in, in Henrico County down in by Richmond. Those are folks who've leased space before in those markets. So clearly, you know, that's a, a, an indicator of both of how uh, cloud data centers are, are driving, uh, creating renewable energy in the U.S. and how that uh, is supporting the, the growth of uh, the industry there. How having that available uh, is a business development tool for, for states and for utilities. And, and much as they used to make me nuts, you know, part of the credit for this goes to Greenpeace. Um, I, you know, when they first started, you know, the, uh, the whole Facebook campaign of unfriend dirty coal, it really mm -hmm. struck me as an unfair kind of criticism because uh, Facebook was one of the most, uh, one of the companies that was the most focused on being really energy efficient. And it stemmed from a belief that this was not just good for the bottom line, but it was good for the environment as well. I, right. you know, I felt like they were true believers, and here they are being hauled out uh, and criticized in these huge campaigns by Greenpeace simply because they didn't have green power. Well, they were either they were using the existing mechanisms in place, right? There weren't very many alternative right. options, right? Yep. Right, and you know, ultimately, there you know, more utilities would have green power available at a premium if you pay more, and some data center companies have done that. But you know, this was at a time when there wasn't much available. And, you know, uh, I would talk to Gary Cook at Greenpeace, and, you know, and, and uh, it would kind of make me nuts because I'm like, you know, he knows the efficiency story, but it's always like, that's all about sourcing. That's very nice that you're efficient and all, but uh, the strategy was to use the data center uh, companies as the largest customers of the utility industry to force them to change their habits and to generate more uh, renewable energy. And is, so, you know, hold on, hold on, hold on. You just, you just said something that I think I, I've heard so many different stats on, that the data center industry is the largest user and consumer of, of commercial energy. Is, is that truly the case? I've, I've heard anywhere from 2 to 7% of the total energy produced is being used by the data center industry. Do, do you have any firm stats or data on that? So there's a couple of things there. One is how much energy does the data center sector use? And I think that 2% number in the U.S. is still about right. And uh, out of all of IT uses about 7% when you look at all the distributed computing operations. Um, but it is absolutely true that um, uh, in terms of corporate buyers, that the data center and cloud companies are the largest purchasers. I saw a list uh, earlier this week. I don't have it in front of me at the, at the moment but of like the top 12 uh, power purchase agreements for renewable energy last year, eight of them were, from, were for data center purposes. Uh, Google has traditionally been among the largest. Microsoft just bought 300, 315 megawatts of green energy in Virginia that will you know, support the, uh, a new energy facility. You know, Google, Apple, uh, Facebook, uh, Microsoft are really driving this in a, in a very significant way, and because uh, you know they're they're each provisioning hundreds of megawatts of renewable energy to support new data center projects. And going forward, that's going to be the case 
uh, for every new facility and new campus that they build because they've huh. created this expectation. They've said, this is the standard that we want from utilities. Um, and that has implications as we need data centers everywhere. So in a way, I think the industry is going to be a, an important force for, uh, uh, for renewables and for, for cleaner energy. So this leads me, funny enough, right into another topic I wanted to ask you about. Um, a friend of mine, uh, H.G. Chisel, H.G., uh, what's up, buddy? Um, he runs a conference in Chicago and New York specifically for the, the energy sector. And so he gets the different um, stakeholders, the, the municipalities, the government, uh, government um, workers who have to deal with the energy sector, as well as the utility providers to show up and have roundtable conversations um, that last for a couple hours. And people give presentations and talk about where it's all going. Uh, but one of the topics that I happen to sit on at one of those in New York last year had to do with the stranded uh, generator capacity that sits in every single data center where these, you know, they're tested every now and again. And if they have to turn on once utility power goes out, they're used, but there's like terawatts of power just sitting, not being used. And yet in some regions, uh, power is being um, strained in that there isn't the capacity um, available. And so there's talk going on about retrofitting some of these generators so that you can put them back on the grid and use them. Some, some cities and states even um, are now you know, providing incentives for data center providers to do that. Have you dug into that topic at all? Only, only a little bit. And, uh, you know, so I know that there are a couple of initiatives where companies have looked at their generator capacity and working with utilities on ways to, uh, you know, sort of work out deals where either it, you know, takes the, uh, reduces the cost of the, the data center power or creates some sort of economics for sharing that back to the grid. Uh, I think Aligned Energy out in Phoenix has a project like that. And I know Microsoft. I think up in Quincy has one of those uh, um, uh, one of those kind of uh, things they're working on, but by and large, the uh, those kind of programs, all the sort of demand response stuff that utilities offer, are there's, as I understand it, there's very few data centers that actively take advantage of that, and that's always been talked about as you know a way that the industries can work together. Um, when I've asked folks about it, it, the answer usually seems to be that. Data centers don't feel that uh, that the you know they'd be compensated for it in a way that uh, uh, that would account for whatever overhead or, or if there's any risk factors that come into doing something like that. Um, and you know when it comes to uh, uptime and generators and all of that, I think you know uh, customers are are always pretty careful about wanting. However much you want, you know, they'll probably want more just to feel as uh, you know, overhead for security. Right. Um, but, um, you know, it's interesting. There's been a couple of conferences like that with uh, uh, Data Center Dynamics. has had a couple of events kind of bring the utilities and the data centers together. And on the one hand, they're, they're folks that do business with one another a lot. Um, utility business models vary from region to region. Uh, the infrastructure varies from region to region. You know, uh, the, the U.S. power grid is something that uh, is not easy to put together wholesale, uh, wholesale 
solutions for. But there yeah, are pockets especially of, nationally. Of yeah, you know, and and uh, and even be able to do something from you know regulatory uh, uh, barriers is. Uh, I mean, you look at what Switch went through in Nevada. They wanted to uh, procure renewable energy directly from from somebody, and it became a thing where they wound up, you know, and uh, they go to court with the utility, and ultimately there was a referendum that opened the power market in Nevada to just say, hey, if you've got a big customer that wants to buy renewable energy, um, you know, they, they ought to be able to do it. It's that the two industries, for as much as they have in common, uh, aren't always speaking the same language and able to get on the same page. So, and I think part of it does have to do with uh, incentives being very complicated. Uh, there are some of these, uh, you know, power deals that you do for renewables where you have to account for cost fluctuations, like, uh, you know, where they could literally make the cost drop and whatever the agreed upon price suddenly is unprofitable. Um, you know, apparently if there's a, a thunderstorm in West Texas, suddenly all of this uh, energy from the, the wind farms out there comes onto the Texas grid and it, uh, uh, and, and uh, the price for power can, can shift dramatically, and that uh, has implications for folks uh, uh, in the data center industry who've done some of these deals. But I know that, that some companies work with financial firms to, to develop hedging strategies uh, to uh, work on their renewable power purchases. So it, it is complicated, uh, which is why it's not simple and everybody hasn't done it, and why I think it still is difficult sometimes for the utility industry and the data center industry to come to the same page. I'm yeah. not an expert in this, but I, I you know, uh, I, I hear from data center people about the challenges that they face in this uh, respect. Yeah, so to that extent, if anyone listening is an expert in this topic <laughs> and, and has, has you know, experience working with both the data center providers and the utility providers, I would love to talk to you. So definitely reach out. Um, I think there's a great conversation that we can have about just that that topic alone. Um, it is fascinating. I've always I've always thought to myself, and I think I've told a handful of people that if I ever get out of the the data center industry um, and move anywhere for whatever reason, I probably would move into that sector because it it's just truly fascinating to me. And you know, just as the the brave new digital world that we live in today is absolutely dependent upon the, these data center facilities. These data center facilities are absolutely dependent on the energy grids actually functioning and working properly. Yeah, my uh, my business partner Kevin Normando also runs a, a site called Microgrid Knowledge, which is all about microgrids. So, you know, he's uh, you know involved in some ways to, to innovate in that uh, area as well. It's, there's a lot going on. It's fascinating stuff, but it's also complicated. Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean. Our industry is also complicated. I think you, you had mentioned earlier that when you get a room full of data center folks like ourselves together, we start speaking a language that is completely unintelligible to, to most people who are outside the industry. Well, uh, and the crazy thing about it is that you have to know about so many different sort of knowledge domains to really be able to get the full picture of data center. So, yeah, right. they're always great conversations. So, uh, and that's, you know, to that to that point, that's part of what I love about our industry is you can't just be, you know, average Joe and be successful in our space. You actually have to be someone who's dedicated, committed, and passionate about it because of the sheer volume of knowledge that you have to learn about cooling, about thermodynamics, about power, about 
compute about application, but the whole gambit of it, right? It's uh, it truly takes someone who's willing to go that extra mile and learn cross functionally across a lot of different topics and subjects. Yeah, and and as a journalist, it's been a real uh, personal challenge for me because there's always something new to learn every day, just to kind of keep up, which is right. to me because it's one of the things I love about this job. You get up in the morning, you never know what you're going to be. Uh, you know, doing or writing about. Uh, and I have a lot of experience, like from uh, my years working in newsrooms, writing about, you know, complex topics and being able to just encounter something. You walk into the, the office that morning knowing almost nothing about a topic. And by the end of the day, you're writing a story about it to try and explain it to tens of thousands of readers. Um, you know, the data center industry and writing for a specialized publication like the uh, like Data Center Frontier, is different in that you're writing for an audience uh, that already knows a lot about the topic, which is very different from writing to a general audience where, you know, when I was writing technology columns at the, the Trenton Times, there'd be, you know, 80,000 people in, uh, in the Trenton area uh, who might read that column, but most of them, you know, even if I uh, wasn't an, an actual expert, I, you know, I knew enough to be able to help translate this for them. It's, it's a much higher bar when you're dealing with, uh, you know, folks who really know the data center industry as well as, you know, everybody that, that we talk to. And so over the years, I've had to sort of learn about things like renewable energy and, you know, Bitcoin uh, in terms of demand drivers, uh, understanding about, you know, cooling and airflows within data centers the different types of equipment, uh, servers and storage and networking, how they impact their environment. Um, you know, now I'm, because of, you know, there's so much uh, uh, happening around 5G, I'm having to learn more about the telecom world than, uh, <laughs> than, I, than I ever needed to. I, I, and uh, Which is fascinating because telecom is, is complex in some uh, very interesting ways that, uh, I make my head hurt sometimes learning about it, but it's uh, it's a critical piece of the process. But you know that's something that I had always kind of uh, had only a certain amount of knowledge about because you know we were focused on the on the hardware, on the infrastructure, on the building. Uh, but it really is a it's like every day it's something new, and, and that's cool. Yeah, the uh, I I always say that the shiny objects that constantly emerge in our space. And the uh, <laughs> the sheer change that occurs on such a regular basis caters to my my undiagnosed, but I know I definitely have ADHD. Um, where I, I just <laughs> there's always something new and fascinating to dig into. We we don't have flying cars yet, but we have self driving cars. So. Right. <laughs> um. So getting back to to your your timeline and your story, if I sure. can, uh, what happened with data center knowledge and what what um, inspired, you know, moving from DCK to Data Center Frontier? Sure. So um, I started D- DCK in 2005, and we sort of 2010 to 2011, it really started scaling up uh, as people discovered the importance of the data center industry and uh, the overall internet economy, and as the industry started to grow. And, uh, you know, we kind of had to make a decision about how we were going to handle the avalanche of news and the volume of interest we had from from advertisers. Uh, And so it was like, well, 
do we want to like you know become a much larger organization uh, or do we uh, you know want to maybe uh, think about uh, uh, pairing up with somebody and, and either partnering or being acquired and uh, you know of course part of the thing that prompted that is you know I would get calls on a fairly regular basis as the data center industry got uh, got popular and a lot of folks were from you know publishers who had a network of sites who thought having a data center site would be cool to kind of bolt it on to the other tech sites that they had. Uh, but, you know, for me, uh, it was really important that to work with people who are really committed to the data center industry. As, 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 I, as I said before, that's sort of uh, fundamental for me. Um, and when, in 2012, we started talking with INET Interactive, which is, you know, uh, the, the folks there had been in touch a couple of times over the years and just said, hey, we really like what you do. We're interested in the data center sector. Uh, and they were interesting because they owned Web Hosting Talk, uh, which was, you know, the hosting industry. And they bought the WER, the Web Host Industry Review. So they had uh, uh, a sort of a commitment to Internet infrastructure already. And they were in the process of buying AFCOM and the Data Center World Conference. Uh, series and and said, hey, we, we really think you know a data center publication would be the the, the right piece. Um, and so we wound up getting acquired by INET. And uh, so working from going from a three-person operation to a much larger group, the INET was interesting because they had uh, they were a, a a distributed company, a first uh, example of that, or an early example of that, I think, where we had people all over the place who had different publications that INET owned. And, you know, we had one guy who was in like Mauritius in the Indian Ocean, and he would call into the conference calls. And he's like, yeah, I'm on the beach here, you know. Uh, so it was really interesting having the sort of uh, uh, distributed workforce like that, the whole remote uh, world. But, um, and so it was good to be part of a larger organization on, on some levels because it gave new capabilities. ECK got a whole uh, sort of higher profile, I think, uh, although most people in the industry knew it. Um, and it was easier to kind of scale things up. Uh, but as we got into like 2014, um, I was just getting exhausted because it was still, you know, a lot of it was, was, was me or me and Colleen or me and Colleen and Kevin. And, uh, you know, when you're writing six and seven stories a day, it makes it hard to uh, really dig into things the way that uh, you used to be able to, uh, you know, because I really like taking uh, a topic and digging deep into it and talking to a lot of people and, and explaining it. It's always been an important part of uh, what I'd like to do. You mean actually, you mean being an actual journalist and like ha having integrity <laughs> well, in your journalism? Well, you know, listen, you know, I, I think the, the old way is still a good way. Uh, and, it, you know, that, there's, there's been a lot of changes in journalism over the, the, the years. But um, from my perspective, when you're trying to write six or seven stories a day, just to kind of cover the waterfront because there's so many things happening, it's hard to get into that kind of depth. And it's also kind of exhausting. And, you know, it, as we got larger, there became that whole need to, you know, feed the bear and the paid views well, you've got to meet goals. And, you know, the whole thing with uh, uh, an online publication 
is you have to be able to sell ads going forward. Uh, but at the same time, you, have, you can't predict how many people are going to read a story in the future. So you, you're really dealing with uh, a lot of variables and in which the, the gap that makes it up, uh, you know, uh, too often tends to be a journalist sitting at a typewriter pounding away and writing more stories than they planned to that day. Um, and so I was burnt out. And uh, so I started scaling things back. We, we, you know, part of it was like, hey, you know, for a, a property that's been really identified with me, uh, how do we sort of expand the, the talent pool and put more people involved? And so I worked with, you know, the folks at INET, and we were able to, to hire uh, Evgeny Spurdlick, who had been um, working at Data Center Dynamics and writing great stuff there. And it was kind of like when uh, the Tori Augustine, who was the CEO of INET, said to me, says, well, who else could do this? The, the first guy I thought of was Yev because, uh, you know, he, he was, uh, over the, the previous couple of years, had really you know, done a good job writing about the industry in a way that I thought showed, showed insight. So Yev came over and became the editor-in-chief of CCK, and I kind of, <laughs> editor em, emeritus or something like that. I, I forget exactly what it was, but I started focusing on writing more in-depth pieces. Um, but I also got a little bit of free time to spend with my wife and my family, which after you've been going full throttle for a long time, sort of a dangerous thing because then you're like, hmm, this is this is what I've been missing out on all this time when I've been uh, going 100 miles an hour building the business. Um, and so when uh, IMET wound up getting acquired by Penton, which is a much larger publisher, uh, that seemed to me to be the right time to to take some time off. Um, and so I did, and, and, you know, part of it was Penton was a little, you know, it was a much, much larger place. It, uh, it felt more corporate and large than, than I did. And, uh, and it was, I, so I just took some time and, uh, Colleen and I, uh, you know, uh, did some travel and, you know, tried to, to just kind of sit it out and relax and, and enjoy life, which was cool. But at the same time. When you've really been engaged in something a long time, you know the urge, you know, uh, was always there to to try something new. And one of the interesting things is that when I had some time off, because I'd always been a student of online journalism and what works and what doesn't, I'm fascinated with business models and business ecosystems. Coming back in 2015 and looking at what would work. Like if you could just build something from scratch and, and start from the ground up, uh, what would you build and how it would be different from what you built in 2005, 10 years ago? And that's kind of what Data Center Frontiers became. Um, you know, I, I, people have asked me this. I have no beef with uh, with ECK at all. I'm a huge supporter of it. It will always be my baby and uh, in, in a way. And... Uh, and I love the work that Yev does. They've, you know, since been bought by Informa, which is an even larger outfit in the UK. So, um, uh, you know, they do some things differently from when I was there, and, and that's cool. But in starting something new, I want to do something different, partly out of like respect and to give space to what DCK does as sort of the, the paper of record uh, in, in the industry. But I also wanted to get back to writing those in-depth pieces and really taking time you know, just doing a couple of stories a week uh, and uh, really dig into things and, and tell the, 
the, the story of what was coming. So that's what Data Center Frontier became. We changed some of the sort of sponsorship and financial models a bit, partly because the banner ad isn't going to live forever, probably, or it, it's like it, it's changed over the years. And I think the fair thing to say is it's changed over the years and how people use it. Sponsored content and thought leadership is a, is a much bigger piece of how we've kind of built data center from here and addressed it. Um, and we're really just focused on not having 11 bazillion people read the site. That'd be nice, but uh, but really focused on reaching decision makers and the folks who are plugged into the data center industry and are most interested in what the future of it is going to look like. And, uh, and that's really sort of uh, the coin of the realm for us. Beautiful. And I appreciate you digging into that much detail. Um, at what at one point, check me if I'm wrong here, but wasn't there a physical publication for data center knowledge and or data center frontier that, that people were toying around with? You know, we have always been entirely online. And that was part of my commitment. I know that there's been a couple of folks who've had, uh, who do online news in the data center industry that also have magazines. Data center, uh, uh, data center Dynamics has a, has a magazine. I think they discontinued for a while, but now they're back. Uh, Data Economy just launched a magazine. And of course, there's others like Mission Critical that have always had a magazine. But DCK, um, at least when I was there, we didn't do it. I, I can't speak for what the Fenton and Informa have done um, and whether they're doing anything in print. Uh, but no, we, we were, I was always focused on online simply because it seemed like, you know, the, the, the economics of it were so attractive. Uh, but it, you know, it does seem that there's uh, some data center users and executives that like having something in their hand in front of them, uh, and I think that uh, that's why there's still a market for that kind of stuff. And, yeah. Uh, but it, it's uh, you know, uh, it's not probably not something that uh, that, that we're doing or going to do. Yeah, I think it was DCD. Now that you mention it, that uh, that I was thinking of there. Um, so what's what's the future for Data Center Frontier, and are there any new things that you're shaping up? And maybe we can use this as a, as a little self promotion for the the work that we're hopefully going to be doing together here in the near future. Yeah, well, I, I'd be glad to. So you know, we're uh, we have been working with with uh, Sean and, and uh, Open Spectrum on uh, you know thinking of a number of ways to to work together on on content, both in terms of helping to promote uh, the I love data centers podcast and repackage some of that into sound bites and, and, uh, you know, the uh, data center, uh, uh location playbook, uh, we're going to uh, work in, in creating some, some content, uh, out of that to, to have topical reports. And, uh, you know, because, uh, we are always looking for new ways to kind of help our readers understand the industry and to gain insight into what's going on and educate themselves in ways that, will kind of help them do business and, and succeed and uh, help build this amazing you know, world of internet infrastructure that we're, we're working in here. So we're, uh, we're the, uh, pleased to be working with, with you guys on that. And uh, everybody who's, who's listening, you know, keep an eye out. We'll have, uh, if you haven't already, of course, you should always be reading Data Center Frontier at datacenterfrontier.com and, and get our, our newsletter. Uh, which comes out a couple times a week, right into your inbox, and um, and we'll be, be letting people know about what we're doing there. Um, 
But, you know, that's one of a number of things where we're trying to work with uh, other folks in the, the industry. We work with, you know, folks at like Data, data Center Hawk and, uh, uh, you know, Picasa uh, on the, the jobs front to, to have some, some job listings. So um, we're always interested in, in uh, uh, providing uh, new, new content for our readers. Uh, obviously, going forward, there's, there's going to be uh, uh, a lot to watch in terms of new technology. Uh, and so I think the next five years are going to be wild in terms of trying to get our arms around the next generation technologies that are going to impact the data center space and uh, where and, and how people build them. Beautiful. Um... So I've got a couple random rapid fire questions to throw your way. <laughs> okay. Uh, so what, what is, I'm very curious your answer to this. Do you have any, you know, ideas or thoughts or, or practices in your day to day that you think other people find you to be just off your rocker um, about? Oh, that, that, that are just like sort of uh, outliers. Right. Yep. <laughs> Unconventional thinking. Yep. Um, I, I think, uh, you know, I have a lot of conversations with people about the whole autonomous cars thing. I'm a real believer in that. And a lot of people are really skeptical, particularly once you get outside the sort of uh, bubble of, uh, uh, you know, Silicon Valley and, and the technology industry uh, thing. Um, I think there's a lot of logic to it. And I have a lot of conversations with folks who, who, who scratch their head or just, you know, think, oh, that's not going to be for me. Or, you know, what are you talking about? Are you from the future? <laughs> like that and uh you know that's just one of those things where uh i don't know if that that qualifies but that's one of those things where i find that um when uh it's one of those disconnects i think between my my day job and when you talk to folks uh, around you like at at church or something else where you know people scratch their head i don't know what uh, what rich is thinking about there but uh, but that's one good one um so you, as as clearly people who know you know, and as you've discussed, you're constantly learning new things and seeing seeing new things uh, occurring in the industry and trying to stay on top of it. But with all of that, what is the most fascinating thing that you think you've learned over the past past few months? You know, something I, something that's just blown your mind that you know you never thought possible, or or something unique to that extent. I think the the real mind blower for me has been the extent to which. Artificial intelligence is going to be in everything, and what that means to the the data center industry and to technology in general. Um, and I think there's a lot of implications to that that people just are behind the curve in getting their minds around. Uh, because you know AI is going to inform a lot of products. We're already seeing this. I mean, you know, when people ask for an example of it, it's always like I always say, well, in Facebook, when you upload a photo and right away they, they say, hey, do you want to tag this person? Because Facebook system knows how, how who that is from these contacts. Um, you know, that's the kind of thing that you could apply in a million different ways. Um, I think AI has tremendous potential and technology companies see that. Um, and I think uh, a lot of things people worry about uh, with AI are the wrong thing. I think there's this whole, there's so many different kinds of AI, but the whole sort of Terminator science fiction, you know, the our, our uh, 
robot overlords are, are coming for us to take all our jobs and eat our brains or something. But that uh, uh, is really not what the, the big concerns about AI are. Uh, I think there's uh, a lot of focus that ought to be paid to, you know, it's kind of a garbage in, garbage out system as it exists now with AI. The machines aren't thinking for themselves. They're being programmed in pattern matching and recognition, and that's being able to use to supplement a lot of applications and, and take learned information from other sources and apply it to different things. AI accelerates and expands on that massively, and a lot of folks are figuring that out, whether it's being able to read x-rays for, for radiology and spot cancer earlier, or to you know figure out within two seconds who that, uh, that is in the picture you uploaded to, to Facebook. Um, but I think that, that um, you know, it's Still, the AI community is uh, still a fairly small group of people who are developing technology that's going to be distributed in a very wide range of technologies and going to infiltrate our lives in a lot of different ways, and uh, many of which we don't expect. And so, to me, the real sort of mind bender is, you know, has been looking at that and, and what AI means in practice. And at the same time, you see some of the, the technology starting to come into data centers. You know, on the one hand, I was just writing about you know, cooling issues and how AI affects that uh, this week on, on Data Center Frontier. And, you know, it's not just, you know, one or one or two, you know, pods of the GPUs or something like that. We're seeing large-scale, uh, you know, infrastructure installations to, to support these kind of things. And, and that's going to be, I think, to me, is something's really got my attention. It's it's funny that you mention that because every time I ask that question to people, I ask it to myself in my head, and the same the same thing occurred to me as I was reading an article I think two days ago about how sporting event venues, uh, if you read the ticket, basically it says that they have the ability to not only you know take a picture and an image of your face, but use that use your likeness and your image while you're at the event. Um, but where that plays in is as they're doing that in the stadium, if they recognize that a majority of the population is a certain de age demographic or gender demographic uh, or whatever it might be, they will then tweak the music that they play during the event as well as the advertising that is displayed during the event to make it more relevant to the audience that's there. And it's that just blew my mind that uh, <laughs> that that no matter what sporting, like if you're at a baseball game, uh, a hockey game, uh, bat, whatever it is inside any of these large venues, uh, that, th that they're doing that type of business intelligence and AI uh, and making those decisions on the fly during, during the, the event. Yeah, and, and the thing is that there's a million different examples of things like that that on the one hand bring amazing capabilities into play, uh, and sometimes bring a certain amount of anxiety or kind of creep factor into it in terms of, you know, privacy. And, uh, you know, I, I, I saw Scott McNeely talk last week and he was famous for saying, you have no privacy, get over it. But, um, but I think, you know, obviously the, those issues are very much in the news right now, mostly being seen through the prism of Facebook, which I think is just one part of a, a larger story about data, AI, surveillance, and all of that, that, uh, um, that these issues are, are, are going to be uh, only become larger in our, in our public uh, discussions.
So the last question I'm going to ask you here has to do with, um, it's actually a two-part question, but what advice would you give new journalists that are coming into the industry today? And maybe we can even narrow it to, you know, technology specific focused journalists uh, coming into the industry. Uh, the first thing is uh, keep your standards high that, um, you know, integrity in reporting and being sensitive to uh, accurately and truly portraying the stuff that you're uh, that you're writing about uh, is always going to serve you well. Working to higher standards than the guy you know down the street. I, I mean, I think there's a lot of uh, what's happened on with the proliferation of news sources and blogs and stuff on the internet. It has kind of lowered the, the standards for uh, the profession in general. And uh, you know, if if there's someone who's really interested in doing it now, and it's not a happy time for people who are just entering the industry for a lot of the reasons that uh, we talk about is um, really conducting yourself with integrity and really always be willing to make that extra call or ask that extra question to try and make sure that you're, you're getting the story right and not just first or fast. Um, because that, I think, is really... Um, to me, at the end of the day, is always a saving grace about is, you know, when you write something, you publish it, can it be believed? Have you put the effort in to really, you know, understand what it is that, that the story that you're trying to tell? And, and you know, I know because I'm working in a really technical field, I don't always get that exactly right, but I always kind of work with sources to, to make sure that if we, if we, if something comes out sideways, that we can, you know, uh, address it and fix it, and we try to do that before the story's published. <laughs> after, uh, but you know, I just think you will never go wrong by uh, setting your standards high and working hard at it. And you know, it's the kind of business that you can. It's easy to fall in love with the work, uh, and with newsroom culture is a. It's a little different now, but um, uh, but it can be really rewarding. But uh, I think it takes a, a certain uh, kind of a principled and very determined person uh, to to uh, really commit to those standards and to uh, uh, and to, to build a career in this. But it, for me, it has been enormously rewarding. I never in a million years would have figured out that I'd wind up writing about data centers. You know, the guy who wind up uh, started out uh, uh, writing about high school sports events uh, to be uh, doing what I'm doing now is pretty wild. Uh, uh, but it's been a great ride, and I think there's uh, lots of cool stuff to come. I love I love that answer for so many reasons, uh, but I think it's just great advice for anybody in general, right? To have high standards and operate with integrity and Absolutely. make sure you've got the story straight. Um, is there any other advice you would give maybe some some professionals who are not journalists that are looking to migrate maybe from the telecommunications industry into the data center industry or from you know, working for a hardware VAR or a hardware company into the data center space? Uh, learn, learn, learn. That's the, that's the thing. Always be, always be talking to folks. Always be learning. Um, clearly, you know, with, with my background, I'm, uh, I'm interested in learning and, and information and always absorbing new stuff. But I think it serves you really well in business. I think it's a key differentiator between the folks who... Uh, succeed and those who don't is being willing to learn something new and understand that 
there's the world is changing every day and you cannot fight the future. And you have to be able to say, okay, whichever direction the puck is skating, you know, that's where Wayne Gretzky, you know, uh, would, would try to get to before it got there. Uh, that it's, it's hard work, uh, you know, trying to keep pace of everything, but it's, a uh, it's a blast when it comes together. And, and, and I think that's the most exciting way to, to do business every day is to try to really figure out what's going on. Uh, and the struggle is always to make the time to learn what you really need to know. Uh, whether it's, you know, uh, taking a course, talking to somebody, you know, <laughs> reading Data Center Frontier, listening to the I Love Data Center's podcast, uh, that uh, just commit yourself to, to lifelong learning and, and getting up in the morning determined that they'll, you know, you're going to know more than you did uh, at that moment when you go to sleep that night. Beautiful. And the very, very last question I have for you, which you've already answered, but I have to ask it again, is do you love data centers? I love data centers. <laughs> I appreciate it, Rich. I appreciate you. Honest to God, you you are a breath of fresh air in this industry. You've been um, a pleasure to know and to to read. Just knowing that someone like you exists in our space and has the the voice that you have is is uh, enlightening for me and just encouraging for me to do in what I do. So thank you for being the person that you are and for having the integrity that you have and the work that you do. You make you make our industry better and you make me personally a better person. So thank you so much for, for what you do and for taking the time today. Hey, listen, you are totally welcome. This has been a blast. I love this conversation. And uh, and I appreciate the, you making the time and, and, and having the interest uh, and for all you do. So thank you, Sean. And thanks for the podcast. It's a, it's a great resource. Thank you, man. I appreciate it. And we'll talk soon. So there you have it, folks. I hope you enjoyed the interview. And before I sign off, I really need you to know that we really do love data centers over here at Open Spectrum. It's not just a, a catchy tagline for a podcast. They are our passion and our livelihood. And I encourage you to learn more about how we serve buyers, service providers, agents, master agents, and investors in the data center hosting network and cloud services space. Uh, you can check out our website at www.openspectruminc.com where you can download a mountain of free content that we produce, such as the numerous regional market reports and excerpts from our book, the Data Center Colocation Industry Playbook, that is now on its fourth edition. And I think at this point, we've sold close to over 1,200 copies of the book. You can also read the show notes and links from this podcast at www.openspectruminc.com forward slash I love data centers. Have a great week and I will see you and hopefully hear from you soon. Mm-hmm.